0: So there was a young, devout Jewish boy uh, who grew up in this Greco-Roman city on the northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea. And he grew up in this important trade center. It It was a big city. There was a lot of people coming and going. Uh, Lots of, uh, of manufacturing of things like cloth that was used for making tents. And so he grew up in this environment where there was this unique fusion of Greek culture, Roman citizenship, Jewish religion, all coming together in this metropolitan area. There were famous universities, so there was, it was known for its education. And this boy and his family were, were part of this Jewish community that had, had scattered away from Jerusalem. And so they're living in this place that is not Jerusalem, but trying to preserve their Jewish heritage. Trying to pers- pers- um, preserve their, their Jewish beliefs. In a world that is attacking them, they were desperately trying to hold on to their faith. Trying to hold on to their uniqueness. While at the same time living in a very Roman world. A world that said the emperor was God, not the God of Abraham. And so for this young, devout Jewish boy, he grew up learning about this Jewish faith. And this inheritance was significant. It was important to his way of life. It was important to his family. He he studied it. He had a deep, deep love for God and for Scripture. His father was a Pharisee. And so the study of Scripture was important. He was immersed in this. And he excelled at these studies. He was a great student. And so this young, devout Jewish boy at around the age of 13, traveled some 600 miles to Jerusalem to continue his education, to continue learning the Jewish way. And not just scripture, but but the rabbinical studies as well. It was a great opportunity. He, He studied under one of the most famous teachers in Jerusalem. What an incredible opportunity for this young, devout Jewish boy. If this were today, this young man would have been the class favorite, the teacher's pet, the the class president or the valedictorian. He was at the top of his class. He was a leader among peers, no doubt an up and rising star. And so while this young, devout Jewish boy was living in Jerusalem studying, things started to get unsettled. Now, Jerusalem is rarely a place where things are settled. And things were stirring between the Roman occupation and Jewish revolt. There was always some some conflict, some threat to the peace. And so the desire to, to preserve faith dominated their way of thinking, dominated their politics, dominated their power structure. They wanted to pursue, per, pers- preserve the Jewish way. And so this young Jewish boy, he begins hearing of disruption. He begins hearing his friends and his classmates and his teachers who are debating and questioning and arguing and fighting This guy Jesus has come along. Who is he? And what is he up to? He had some pretty radical things to say about the Jewish leadership, the Jewish establishments. And then he's executed. And it wasn't the first time that there had been a radical uprising in Jerusalem. There had been ones that had come before that said that they were the Messiah. And they too were executed. And then they moved on. But this one just was not going away. Something was different in Jerusalem. One of the Jesus followers was brought to the high priest and put on trial for the things that he was saying. And what he had to say was so blasphemous that they took him out of the city and stoned him to death. And so we see Stephen laying outside of the city dead. And this young, devout Jewish boy, now a young man but still a teenager, stands on the sidelines witnessing this execution, holding the coats of the executioners. And he approves of this. He approves of this execution. So much so that he now devotes his life to making sure that this threat goes away, that his Jewish heritage will not be lost. The threat must be stopped. And so this devoted young man dedicates his life to stopping the way. There's another young, devout Jewish man. This one is living in Damascus, a very different city, about 150 miles north of Jerusalem. It is, for 4,000 years, this has been the capital city of one government after another. Damascus is always the prize win of war. And so there is there as well this great trade of beautiful treasures from the east. Treasures of silks and perfumes and carpets and foods all coming into this rich city. But there's a a strong Jewish community there as well. And this young, devout Jewish man lives here in Damascus. And similar to others who were scattered away from Jerusalem, he too is living this life trying to preserve, preserve his Jewish faith. Families trying to hold on to their uniqueness, hold on to their identity. This second young, devout Jewish man starts to hear word of Jesus. Hearing word from Jerusalem that that the Messiah has actually come. And there's disruption and there's conversation about who is this Jesus? Many didn't recognize him as the Messiah. And so he was executed. But miracles of all miracles happens. And this one raises from the dead. This Jesus must be different. Because through the resurrection, it confirms for them that he is the Messiah. It validates his claim that he is the one that comes from God. And so now there's this stirring in Damascus as well. And Jews begin believing that Jesus is the Messiah, and they they become a part of what is called the way. They believe. And this other young, devout Jewish man believes. He joins the way. So we have two very different young, devout Jewish men here who are very much trying to follow in the way of God and being obedient to what God has called them to do. And so we're in this story going through the book of Acts. We get to Acts chapter 9, and we get to this pivotal story of conversion. We've had several stories of conversion leading up to this point, and now we get to the, the conversion of Paul this pivotal character that will, will play out through the rest of Acts, who, who is responsible for writing a big chunk of the New Testament. The story of his conversion. In chapter 8, we see this great conversion of the Samaritans. Uh, we see this uh, conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. And now we get to chapter 9, and the Jesus, the Jesus movement is growing, it's spreading rapidly. Let's continue our story of these two young devout Jewish men, as we get to Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So we've got Saul, this young man from Tarsus, the northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea, who grew up in this Greek culture, Roman citizenship, Jewish religion. And he has devoted himself to eliminating this threat to his faith. He's witnessed the stoning of Stephen. And now he is on his way to Damascus under the authority of the high priest to arrest anybody there who claims to believe in Jesus. Saul takes the initiative here to go out and destroy the church. Verse 3, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? So Saul is is painted in this picture here as the enemy. He is the enemy of the church. He is the one who is going out to persecute the church. And and this word persecuted is used frequently throughout Acts. And, And most of the time this word is used, it's referenced specifically to Paul. Saul. He is the persecutor. He is the enemy of the church, enemy number one. And here he has this incredible encounter, this life-changing experience where he is headed in a certain direction, what he thinks that he is doing for God's sake. He thought he was the one pursuing But he's the one being pursued. As this light shines upon him, he drops to the ground and hears his name twice, which is never a good sign. If you have to say his name twice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so the divine interrupts reveals himself to Saul. And so Saul asked the right question. He says, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Ah, the role of power has changed here. This confidence Strong, devout, young man is now being told, go here and wait for me. And who is it that's interrupting his plan? He's got a path, he's got a road that he is headed down, and he asks, who is this that is messing up my plan? This is Jesus. And what does Jesus say about himself? You are persecuting me. And so we see here this incredible image where where Paul is persecuting the church. And Jesus says that because of that persecution, if you are persecuting a believer, Jesus himself is experiencing that pain and suffering. Jesus himself and the believer are bound together, and God experiences our pain. For some of you, that may be the only thing that you need to hear today, that God experiences your pain. When someone persecutes a believer, when a believer is suffering, Jesus suffers as well. We continue on. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. Imagine this scene. You're you're going with Saul to Damascus to go arrest the believers, and he now is laying on his face in the dirt, talking to someone. Who is this leader of ours that's lost it? They stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. And Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. Saul was blind before this. He just didn't know he was blind yet. Saul was blind to Jesus, and now he is physically blind as well. He's now helpless. He's broken. He's humbled. This this man who has been moving about with power and position and authority now finds himself in this unexpected state this humbled state. He's far from home, and now he is on the the ground blind, completely dependent on others, having to lead him like a little child. This great and mighty Saul is humbled. He's broken down. And soon he will be joined in Damascus with another person who is in a very unexpected state as well. Ananias, this other young, devout Jewish man who believes in the way. Continuing in verse 10, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, just once. <laughs> yes, Lord, he answered, Now this is Ananias' day, right? Jesus has called my name. And it's once, so it's the good way, not the bad way. (laughs) Jesus is calling me by name. Yes, Lord! This is a clear calling from God. And what an incredible moment this must be. How many of us wish for that moment where God would just call us by name, that we would have a vision so clear of God calling us? But it doesn't stop there. Because the clearer the call, the more difficult the task. Ananias has a clear call. And maybe he spoke up a little too soon when he said, Yes, because this is what God tells him. Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he is praying In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. He's already seen the dream. You're already on the hook for doing this. I'm asking, but not really asking. And Ananias says, Lord, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your people in Jerusalem. And he has come here under the authority of the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. Ananias is like, wait, you want me to do what? You want me to go where? To who? I know this Saul character. He is enemy number one of the church and you want me to go to him? He's coming here to do us harm. And so Ananias has to make a decision. Do I act on the truth about someone that I know? I know that he's dangerous. Do I act on that truth and put myself into danger? Or do I follow the word of God? Do I follow the call of God to this dangerous person? Verse 15, but the Lord said to Ananias, go. I wasn't kidding. Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the gentiles and their kings and to the people of israel i will show him how much he must suffer for my name ananias has got to go he must go he must go to that person that dangerous person that threatening person that enemy of the church And the truth that we know about a person has to shift to what God knows about that person, not just what we think we know about that person. We see through God's eyes. We see past what we think to be true. We see past our own safety into what is dangerous. Ananias must go for the sake of Jesus. He must go to enemy number one, And so will he take the risk? Will Ananias go? Will he take his place in the ranks of disciples who have been faithful to the call, faithful to to carry out the name of Jesus even in the midst of danger and risk? Will he go even to a killer? Yes. Ananias. Ananias. Will go. And then Ananias went to the house and he entered it, and placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Brother Saul. Brother. Offering fellowship being brought into the new community, being transformed from enemy into brother. And Ananias is playing this critical role in the conversion of Saul. This role of inclusion. This role of bringing in. Being a part of the family. And being obedient to what God has called him to do. See, conversion is not just this individual thing. It's not just between me and God. It's between me and the family of God. This new community that's formed, moving from enemy to brother and sister. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. Can you imagine these disciples looking at each other like, really, what what is going on? What is happening here? but he spends time with them. His plan is completely changed. His path completely detoured. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God, the one who is out to destroy the church on the road to Damascus to arrest anybody who would confess that Jesus is the Son of God, is now proclaiming that truth. The one who was out to destroy the way now proclaims the way. This is a powerful story that just speaks so much on its own. This story of, of interruption a story that's way too familiar for many of us, and so we can we put ourselves into this story in a new and fresh way. As we see Paul being broken down, being humbled, and breaking through into this incredible new reality. You see, God interrupts our lives. For some of us, those interruptions are just subtle little hints. For some of us, those interruptions are being blinded on the road. But God comes in and interrupts us, speaks to us, points out our blindness, and gives us new sight. And so where is it that we are blind to what God is calling us into? Where is it that we are blind to to the work of the Spirit around us? Where is it that we are blind to the kingdom of God at hand? Think about times that you've been interrupted. As parents of young children, there is never not an interruption. (laughs) Constant interruption. Constant interruption. As one kid is, is pulling on one leg and, and another kid is pulling on another leg and, and trying to get your attention. And so, when we are interrupted, whether it's being interrupted by a child or, or being interrupted by a phone call, being interrupted by a coworker when you're really focused on finishing your sermon, and they walk into your office asking you questions. Yeah. The part that didn't make sense is when Corey walked in and interrupted me. <laughs> we have these interruptions. Sometimes we're just oblivious to those interruptions, right? If you've had young children, maybe you know, sometimes the sound of these kids, you just, you just gloss over at times. You just don't hear it anymore. Or maybe it's a buzzing phone or a certain alarm clock in the morning. (laughs) There's these things that you just become oblivious to. You don't even pay attention to the interruption anymore. And the interruption gets louder and louder and louder, and you finally shift your attention to, to pay attention to the interruption and realize the thing that you thought was so much more important really is not all that important that maybe that interruption really was a crisis. For Paul, for Saul, out on the road on the way to Damascus, there was this interruption. He thought he knew the way. He thought he knew the path. He thought he knew what God wanted for his life. And the little interruptions were not enough. This flash of light had to throw him onto the ground blinds to get his attention to realize that there was something more important going on. There was something that he missed, something that he was blind to. There's the story of two battleships that were were out at sea doing maneuvers, and it got to be a dark, foggy night. Weather was bad, and so the captain remained on the bridge through the night. Shortly after dark, there was this, this call out light bearing on the starboard bow. And the captain calls out, is it steady or is it moving astern? Steady, captain, said the lookout. And so the other boat was on a dangerous collision course as they were navigating through the fog. And so the the captain called out to the signal man to, to send a signal to the other ship. Signal that ship, we're on a collision course, advise you to change course 20 degrees. A signal comes back, advisable for you to change course 20 degrees. The captain sends another message, send, I am a captain, change course 20 degrees, and the message comes back, I am a second class seaman, sir, and you better change course 20 degrees. So, of course, the captain is a bit furious. Sends back another message to this ship that's on a collision course and says, Send, I am a battleship. You change course 20 degrees. And the signal comes back, I am a lighthouse. (laughs) And so the captain mutters, Change course 20 degrees. We have these moments where we are convinced that we're on the right path. We're convinced that we have the right answers. We're convinced that we have the authority, we have the power, we have the knowledge, the education, whatever it is for each of us. We all have these blind spots that make us arrogant. These blind spots that say, I've got this covered. I've got this figured out. You need to adjust course, not me. We all have that blind spot. And God comes in and interrupts that and says, "Where's your light source?" Because you're telling a lighthouse to move. <laughs> and God's not moving. And so where are we blind? Where do we change course? What needs to break down in our own lives to allow us to have breakthrough? What are we holding on to? And as we encounter the risen Christ, we know that God is with us, fills our pain, fills our persecution, fills our struggles. And he says, I've got this if you will just orient yourself to me. And so this is a powerful story of turning. As we see Saul on this path, going from enemy to becoming friends. A breakdown that leads to incredible breakthrough. And we'll get to read more about Paul as we continue this incredible story through Acts.